preach the word, shepherd the flock, equip the saints, and fight the wolves. That's a pastor. That's what a pastor is and does. A pastor is a man, a highly imperfect man, appointed by the living God to preach the word, to shepherd the flock, to equip the saints, and yes, yes, even to fight the wolves. That's what a pastor is called to do. That's what I am called to do. And that work might not appeal to everybody, and that's okay. That work might not float everybody's boat, and that's totally fine with me. But I will say, I will say that although it is at times grueling, it is the most thrilling and energizing work that I can possibly imagine. I get to handle the sacred oracles of the living God. I get to handle the word of God living and active and then preach it for a living As a pastor, I love what I do because I get to deep sea dive into the ocean caves of Revelation and then on Sunday morning show you the treasure discovered. As a pastor, I get to look at a precious blood-bought flock in the eyes and declare to them the invincible hope of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As a pastor, I get front row seats to the supernatural work that God is clearly doing in your lives. I get to see up front Jesus Christ building his church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. As a pastor, I don't always get to go, but I get to train, I get to equip, and I get to send other people to go behind enemy lines into the darkness and save God's elect with the gospel. As a pastor, I get to take the detangling power of the word of God and with it help people untangle their lives, the most twisted, complex sin issues of their souls and see them get transformed. As a pastor, I get to hold babies and hug widows, and hang out with elders, and officiate weddings, and sometimes stand in front of the very gates of hell itself and plead with people not to go inside. That's a pastor. Put it this way, as a pastor, I simply get to help lead a victory parade of a battle that has already been won and accomplished by Jesus. Christ, that is a pastor, and they are not superior to the sheep that they shepherd, but they are appointed by the great shepherd of the sheep to shepherd the flock that he purchased with his blood. And the reason, the reason why we're talking about this this morning, and not Isaiah, the reason why is because last week, you know, we appointed two new elders at Christ Community Bible Church. And you understand, as elders, we are not priests, we're not clergy. We're not a council. We're definitely not a Sanhedrin. We're not a committee. We are not an executive board. We are pastors. We are shepherds. And imperfect though we may be, we are charged by God with care for your souls. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, shepherd the flock of God. 
which he purchased with his blood. You are purchased with the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 2 tells the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Paul told the Ephesians, he said, preach, he said, equip the saints for the work of ministry. In very solemn words, Paul told his protege Timothy, he said, preach the word in season and out of season. And my favorite verse on what pastors are to be and do, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, when Paul said, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Did you know that was my job? That I exist on the planet to help you find and obtain and attain and reach your highest, deepest, satisfying joy? That is my job. And that's only found in Christ. That's a pastor, a God-appointed instrument to help you obtain joy. And you have to understand what a pastor is to be, and you have to understand what a pastor is called to do. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to pause and think about the issue of eldership. We do this every year. We preach on elders. We need to remember what it is that God calls elders, pastors, shepherds to be. This morning, I'm going to preach on what an elder is to be, and next week, Rich is going to preach on what an elder is to do. And what an elder is to be is found in Paul's letter to Titus. And see, the thing about Paul's letter to Titus, the reason why Paul stuck it in an envelope, licked it, sealed it, sent it to Titus on the island of Crete is because it is the blueprints for a healthy church. That's Titus. In other words, whether planting a new church, resurrecting a dead church, or nursing a sickly church back to health, Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. And although Paul's got loads and loads of things that he says you've got to have to have a healthy church, the first thing on the list he says that you need are leaders. And they're called elders. And to be an elder, you need to be qualified. And in chapter 1, Paul gives Titus 15 qualifications divided up into three categories that a man must have and be to be an elder. And for the good of our church, we're going to look at every single one of those qualifications. And the, the thing about those qualifications, and I say this with no little trepidation, is that the thing about them is that they are more lofty and exalted than any other qualification for any other leadership position on the face of the planet. Which sounds crazy. That sounds overdramatic, but it's not. Think about it. Think about it. You might be qualified to lead a team, to lead a company, to lead a battle, or maybe even lead a whole stinking country and yet still not be qualified to lead a church, which is the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. It is the pillar and support of the truth, which means that so much is at stake when it comes to this thing called the church, which makes it the most priceless entity on the face of the planet. And you should know that before we even get into this, that the worst mistake you could possibly make this morning would be to assume that because this is an elder-only passage, that it therefore has elder-only relevance and elder-only implications, which isn't true at all. It isn't true at all. What's really interesting about each one of these qualifications is that they are found somewhere else in the New Testament given to everybody in the church. But they are relevant because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. So here we go, the inspired resume of biblical elders. Here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text three categories. Three 
categories in which elders must be blameless as they lead the church in the global mission of Jesus Christ. Three categories in which elders must be blameless as they help lead the church in the global mission of Jesus Christ. And the first category is this. Number one, elders must be lethal over lust and faithful over their family. An elder must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family. Now, Titus, you probably know, was not an apostle. He was not. But he was one of the most trustworthy men on the face of the planet because Paul picked Titus to accompany him to go to Crete and plant a church, which was, by the way, one of the most difficult and challenging islands in the entire Mediterranean. And you know their mission. Their mission was not to chill on the beach, eating baklava, But their mission was instead to break new ground and build and plant a church on that island from scratch. From scratch, meaning that there was no church until they got there. Or if there was one, it was in really terrible shape. And you have to understand, although Crete may have been a pretty place for a vacay, it was not a pretty place to plant a church. You see, the thing about Cretans is that they loved their pagan heritage and opposing religious views like Christianity, for instance, were not welcome to the party. Typical island pride, they viewed themselves as superior in everybody else with suspicion. They were known around the entire Roman Empire as being lazy, pleasure-seeking, free-spirit, hippie-type people who could not be trusted in anything that they had to say. I mean, look at chapter 1, verse 12. Look what Paul says about Cretans. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons which sounds harsh and pretty judgy, but do you know what Paul just did there? He just quoted a 6th century B.C. poet philosopher named Epimenides who was born in Crete and wrote that about his very own people. So this was going to be an uphill climb. And yet uphill climb, though it was going to be to plant a church on the island, a church had to be planted because that island belonged to Jesus Christ. God's elect were there on the island, and the mandate from, the, from, the, from Jesus Christ was, is to make disciples of all the nations, including the rocky, difficult, challenging, brutal soil there on the island of Crete. So get ready, pack your bags, Titus. We're going to plant a church. And yet to have a church, you have to have elders, and Paul calls them uh, he, they are elders, and elders in the local church who understand have very specific and precise qualifications, 15 of them to be exact. Looking at verses 5 through 9, where Paul gives every single one of those qualifications, he says, For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete, that you would set in order that which is lacking, and that you would appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Who? Who can serve as an elder? If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for it is necessary of the overseer to be blameless as a steward of God, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for base gain, but instead of that, the opposite of that, hospitable, loving what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word according to the teaching in order that he should both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. 
There they are. Those are the qualifications, and they matter. They matter to me. They matter to you. And you can tell for whatever reason Paul had to leave Titus alone by himself to finish the work of planting churches. And although there were tons and tons of things to do and to put in order, you notice the particular thing that Paul wanted Titus to do was to appoint elders in every city, or what he means is in every church in every city. Multiple cities, multiple churches for which Titus was responsible. He was a church planter. And you notice that Titus was to examine and appoint not an elder singular, but elders plural. Plural. That's not an insignificant detail. That matters. That is profoundly foundational in understanding God's design for the church. You know why? Because there is not one, not one single text in the entire New Testament that describes a single solitary pastor or elder ruling that church alone by himself. There's not even one that exists. Acts 14.23, and they appointed elders in every church. Acts 20, verse 17, Paul called from Miletus the elders of the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. James 5, 15, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5, 1, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God. So you see, church is singular, elders are plural. And even the title of elders, that has power and relevance. That is significant. And you probably know this, that Greek word literally means older ones. Older ones. And the point you have to understand is not a man's age necessarily, but his maturity. The word, the title elder assumes a level of Christ-exalting maturity and purity and holiness that everyone can see and has seen for years, regardless of their age necessarily. Because you would agree with me that it does not matter how much confidence or charisma or competence a man may have if that dude doesn't have verifiable Christian maturity that everyone can see and has seen for years. He is not qualified to be an elder because you would agree that it is not so much great talent that God uses for his glory so much as it is great likeness to Jesus Christ. That's exactly where Paul goes next. Because in response to the question, who, who is able to serve as a pastor, elder, shepherd over the local flock of God, which Christ purchased with his blood, the answer comes back in verse 6. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having believing children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for it is necessary the overseer to be blameless as the steward of God. And there is the operative word, blameless. An elder, pastor, shepherd must be blameless. What you have to understand is that word blameless, that with the power of a neutron bomb, that is the overarching qualification that an elder has to be. And all the 14 qualifications underneath that explain what it means to be blameless. That make sense? Blameless is the overarching, all-inclusive one, and all the 14 beneath that define and display and explain what it looks like to be blameless in real life, actual situations. And what it means to be blameless is not that one is sinless, but at the very least that his life has been transformed by the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. 
To be blameless means that you don't have habits and patterns of sin in your life that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. To be blameless means that you do not and cannot live in nonchalant disregard of the word of Christ. It means there's nothing hidden in your life which if it were to be exposed when all the facts are in would in any way bring your life or your church or your God into public disrepute. It means there are no scandals, no skeletons, no secrets, no shame. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing to hide. People could peek in your windows, rummage through your drawers, look underneath your bed, scour your internet history and record your most secret conversations and play them for everybody to hear. And what they would find is not a man who is sinless, but a man who is blameless, a man who is transfixed by the glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be blameless. The question is, man, are you blameless this morning? Are you a blameless man? I'm not asking if you are sinless. I'm asking if you are blameless. What I'm asking is, do you have habits and patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? Or to put it positively, you put it the other way, are the most private secret moments of your life governed by the reality that God is there in the totality of his being and that he is the greatest treasure in the universe to you? Because that's how we become blameless, not by guilt, not by fear of being caught, but by seeing and savoring the transcendent worth and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, though, if you were to dissect and extract what a blameless elder actually looks like in real life, actual situations, what does a blameless man actually look like? And Paul says exactly what that looks like. It looks like a man who is lethal over lust and faithful over his family. Look again at verse 6. Who, who may serve as an elder, pastor over the blood-bought flock of Jesus Christ? He says, if any man is blameless, here's what that looks like. The husband of one wife having faithful children. And there it is, lust in the heart and leadership in the home. Which means in this first category of qualifications, Paul pokes around in the most private thoughts and moments of a man's life, doesn't he? He invades the, the, the most secret desires of a man. He invades the most unguarded moments when he is alone by himself or at the very least in front of his family when the doors are closed and no one can see him except God and or his own family. And Paul says there, in those moments, before God alone or before his family alone, that is who a man really is. And who a man is in those moments determines if he is called to shepherd the flock of God. So that's where Paul's going, lust and leadership, purity and parenting, holiness and headship. Let's take these one at a time. The first demonstration, manifestation that a man is truly blameless is, he, is if he is first the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait a second, he's talking about marriage here. He's talking about marriage. You said, Jared, that he was talking about uh, purity and lust. And I say, no, Paul is assuming that most men will be married. 
but the issue that he's actually concerned about here is sexual lust and purity. You see, when Paul talks about being a husband of one wife, what he is after here is being a one-woman man. In other words, he's talking about a faithful man. He's talking about a holy man. This is a man who not only made his vows, he keeps his vows. At the end of the day, what he's after is a life of uncompromising sexual purity and a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust because polygamy, adultery, a weekend fleeing, homosexuality, pornography, or any other deviation from the Bible's clear standard of sexuality is exactly what Paul has in mind, and that standard is the same whether he is single or he's married. And at the end of the day, what Paul is after here is a man so utterly captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ and so riveted by his redemptive achievements that he sees the pleasures of lust to be for what they actually are, namely counterfeit pleasures that cannot satisfy his soul. That's what Paul's after because a blameless man, single or married, is lethal with lust. So not just the men, but to the men, How are you doing? Are you blameless in the area of sexual lust? Single or married, are you pursuing a life of uncompromising sexual purity? Single or married, are you pursuing a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust? Notice how I frame the question. That it happens by the power of grace. It happens not when we grit our teeth and clench our fists and try really hard, but when we, are, when we see what it is that Christ is, what it is that he has accomplished, it is possible. Victory is not merely possible. It is inevitable, inevitable because of the redemptive achievements of Christ. But, but being blameless is first being pure in heart, but it also has to do with parenting in the home. Look at verse 6. Blamelessness, Paul says, extrapolated and visualized is having... Notice, faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's the qualification. And that's really interesting, isn't it? That the next qualification on the list has to do with the man's family, with how his children act. It's very interesting. And the reason why this made the list, and you could totally see this, is that the man's home is the truest test of who and what a man really is. You see, who and what a man is is who he is when he is at home. And he pulls in the driveway, pulls into the garage, closes the door, hangs up his keys. That's who a man is right there. And I know your version, there's a debate about this, and if you've had your ear to the tracks, you know what the debate is. Your version might say elders must have children who believe believe and the idea is that they're regenerated and saved and although that is the longing of every believing parent that their own children would believe they don't actually think that's the issue that paul is concerned with i don't think he's talking about that because that word believe can also be justly rendered faithful it could be rendered faithful and i think what paul has in mind is well taught well disciplined children who are faithful to submit to the loving leadership of mom and dad in the home. I think that's what Paul's after. And obviously the hope is that they would get saved eventually, but this is what Paul is describing. In fact, in fact, if you look at it, Paul goes on to explain exactly what he means by faithful by the very next clause. He says, well, here's what he means by children who are faithful. They are not accused 
of dissipation or rebellion. What's the point? The point is, if that's how you're defining what it means to be a believer, that's a pretty low bar. But the issue is, Paul is holding out the possibility that elders, pastors will sometimes have young kids, and the test of his ability to shepherd the flock is seeing him shepherd his own children. So understand, the whole point about this qualification is less about the children and way more about the father of those children, isn't it? You see, having faithful children is less about the children being so wonderful and perfect and looking like the model family than it is about a man who owns the burden to shepherd his children with the gospel. That is the issue. And it's obvious, isn't it? A man's leadership in the home is the greatest proving ground for ministry because a man's home is his greatest ministry. I mean, how can you tell? How can you tell if you're going to have a shepherd who's going to care for you, who's going to love you, who's going to bear your burdens, who's going to try to make disciples of you? How can you tell that a pastor shepherd is going to do that? You can tell if he already has been and is doing that in his own home with his own little children. If he shepherds his own little sheep, leads his own little lambs, teaches and preaches and makes disciples of his very own children, that's how you tell. Because who we are at home, men, that's who we really are. Which brings us then to category number two. Category two in which an elder must be blameless. Number two, an elder is blameless because of the sins that he puts to death. An elder is blameless because of the sins that he puts to death. Because you notice there in verse seven that the next round of qualifications are all expressed in the negative these are the kinds of things that an elder, pastor, shepherd must not, cannot have in his life. Put it this way, in verse 7, Paul identifies five targets, five terrorists of sin that an elder and everybody else, for that matter, must put to death with holy violence. Look what he says, verse 7. He says, it is necessary the overseer to be blameless as a steward of God. And here they are. Here are the five targets to put to death. He must not be arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent. And last but not least, he must not be greedy for shame or gain. Those are the targets. The terrorists of sin, get this, that a man must already have been putting to death in his life long before he is considered to be an elder in the church. We'll take these one at a time. Target number one, you notice that an elder must not be arrogant. Must not be arrogant, and Paul doesn't explain it here, but we can only guess as to why it is that he put it first on the list. Not necessarily because it's worse than the other sins, but probably for leadership type guys who are called to lead other people. It's the easiest sin to be infected by. Speaking for a friend. And although the answer is obvious, we should ask the question, okay, why? Why is this on the list? Why must a pastor, elder, shepherd must not be an arrogant man? And the answers to that are legion and obvious. You see, the reason why arrogance is on the list is because Everything that elders are called to do in the Bible are the opposite of arrogant. The great shepherd of the sheep himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And therefore, as the sovereignly appointed under-shepherds, they are to embody in their lives, embody in their ministries, 
the very character of the great shepherd that they represent. And although he was no pansy mushball who catered to the whims of a fickle crowd, the last thing he was was arrogant. And you understand that an arrogant elder is an overbearing elder. This is a harsh elder. This is an abrasive man. He's heavy-handed. He's hypercritical. An arrogant elder is an argumentative elder. He's independent, self-willed, a terrible listener, unsympathetic. He wants all the power to do what he wants to do with zero accountability. He's easily angered, extremely defensive. He beats and bruises the sheep. He's blind to his own sins, slow to confess his own faults. He assumes the best about himself and the worst about other people. And in the end, what he is is a glory thief driven by a passion to feel significant and to be applauded, which means in the end he isn't an elder at all. The question is, the question is, all of those symptoms, do you see any of those in your life? anything at all. Because isn't it interesting to you that the very next qualification on the list is anger. Number two. Target number two on the list is anger to kill. Look what he says. Elders cannot be men with habits of anger. Literally quick-tempered, short-fused, explode on impact. This is someone who's easily angered, easily provoked, easily irritated, easily enraged. And it makes perfect sense why this qualification follows after arrogance, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. Arrogant people are angry people. Whenever you smell the smoke of arrogance in your life, rest assured that the fires of anger are not that far behind. And let's do some biblical counseling here for a moment. The, the thing about anger is that its deepest root that leads to it, that produces anger on our lives, you understand, it's idolatry, right? It, it, anger is always a reaction of idolatry. In other words, anger is a profoundly accurate barometer that always reveals the presence of idols lurking in the soul. In other words, when we are sinfully angry, it is because something or someone threatens the idols that are, most, that are most precious to the soul. And so therefore, to kill the anger, we must kill the idols that give way to the anger. And the way to kill the idols that give way to anger is to be infatuated with the Lord Jesus Christ. He must become our greatest treasure. Then we put to death the idols that give rise to anger. Target number three, an elder must not be a drunkard. Must not be a drunkard, and maybe your version says addicted to wine, and what Paul means is willingly enslaved. He means a man who is willingly mastered by his own appetites to the degree that he is willing to destroy his own life and the lives of those around him. Because that's what drunks do. It's very serious, you understand, not because beer... Whiskey or wine in itself is evil, but because the human heart is, and you have one. I mean, we have the opposite of the Midas touch, don't we? Everything Midas touched turned to gold. And you see, everything that we get our hands on has the potential to become an idol that has the possibilities of destroying our lives. And although I would advise caution, and moderation, 
and discretion and self-control with alcohol, you can totally tell that alcoholic drinks aren't really the issue for Paul. I don't believe that's the deal-breaker issue that he's actually concerned about. I think drunkenness is just one of a thousand possible manifestations of a deeper heart issue that Paul is actually concerned about. Drunkenness is just the most obvious one. You see, the object is not so much, the issue is not so much the object to which one is enslaved so much as it is the deeper heart issue that allows one to be enslaved. See, in the end, I think the issue that has Paul on the edge of his seat here, again, is idolatry. Or or more precisely, self-idolatry. Or to put it even more precisely, what Paul is describing, get this, is the idolatrous, self-indulgent pursuit of one's private pleasures and appetites at the expense or exclusion of everybody else. It's the growing obsession The secret pleasure encroaching on the sacred ground of your soul to be reserved for Jesus Christ alone. Do you see anything like that in your lives? Growing, emerging, is it already there? Entrenched, fixed, cemented. Because it makes total sense why this qualification is on the list, doesn't it? It makes total sense. You see, being a pastor is a thinking man's game. This is a theologizing, shepherding, counseling man's profession. Elders are surgeons of the soul who need profound precision with the word of God. And they need every faculty at maximum capacity to feed the flock and shepherd the sheep and lead the lambs behind enemy lines into the darkness. This is why it made the list. And so again, let's be biblical counselors. The way to kill the inner glutton of the soul for elders, non-elders, everybody, the way to kill the inner glutton of the soul get this, is that we must make the glory and beauty of Christ in his word the object of our daily contemplation. In other words, to snuff out the idols of the soul requires supreme satisfaction in the one who alone can satisfy, namely Jesus Christ alone. But you notice target number four on the list, an elder must not be violent. He must not be a violent man. It's interesting that word there that Paul uses literally has the idea of to strike or to throw a punch. It's either the ancient Greek word for a boxer or a bully. What this is is a shepherd who beats the sheep. This man is aggressive, it's confrontational. He's contentious, he's argumentative. This kind of person doesn't win disagreements with precise reason and cool logic, but rather by anger and intimidation. This kind of person is inflexible, unbending, absolutely loves control. I mean, do you know anyone like this? Are you someone like this? This kind of person is harsh, abrasive, and they will only tolerate the eager, open-armed embrace of all of their ideas. This is a person who will not be disagreed or questioned. This is the eggshells kind of person. This is the walking minefield that you dare not ever cross. Some people call them touchy or grouchy or prickly or cantankerous, but the biblical word for that kind of person is this word. Elders like this, they yell 
They argue, they interrupt, they're super defensive, they slam doors, punch walls, hang up phones, and use all sorts of intimidation and manipulation to get their way. And the reason they do is because they are way, way too infatuated with themselves and not nearly infatuated enough with Christ and his redemptive achievements, which means they aren't qualified to be elders at all. Target number five. Target number five, a man cannot, should not, must not be a shepherd of God's people if he is greedy for shameful gain. Greedy for shameful gain. And there's an interesting word that Paul uses. It's actually two Greek words smashed together. Aiskros, meaning shame. Kerdos, meaning gain. Aiskrakerdos, shameful gain. And what it describes is financial or material gain obtained in such a way that if it were ever to be exposed to the light of day, how he gained it would bring unbelievable shame and consequences upon his life. Ruin the man's reputation. Obviously, the, the health, wealth, prosperity, con men and slime balls on TV, the most egregious example of what Paul's talking about, but there are other more subtle forms of aiskrakerdos that happen every single day. In fact, money, I don't even think is really even necessarily the issue at all. You see, a lust for wealth is just one possible manifestation of, of the thousand possible manifestations that greed could take. For instance... I think what Paul's describing here is a greedy, appetite-driven man, driven by selfish interests and ulterior motives to gratify his own private de uh, desires and appetites and cravings at the expense or exclusion of the flock. It could be recognition, a desire for the applause and accolades of men. It could be power, popularity, control, and if he's a particularly charming and good-looking fellow, access to women or to men. Some men are attracted to pastoral ministry because it's an intellectually gratifying way to earn a living. Some men are lazy and slothful, and they know, they have learned that churches oftentimes lack accountability, and so they pursue ministry as a life of leisure. Bottom line, at the end of the day, if there is anything other than the glory of Christ and the advance of his plan, and the increase of your eternal joy, driving that man to be a shepherd. He is not a shepherd at all. And so here's the issue, because pastors have fallen hearts, just like you, with which they have to go to war every single day, just like you, the elders need you to pray. They, they need you to pray Pray for your elders. Paul told the Ephesian elders, he said, keep watch over yourselves. Paul told his protege, Timothy, he said, pay careful attention to yourself. Paul told Titus in chapter 2, show yourself an example of good works. What's the point? The point is you must be qualified to be an elder, and you must stay qualified to stay an elder. And so therefore, one of the greatest ways to serve your elders is to pray for your elders and plead with them for supernatural power and grace to be the kinds of leaders God calls them to be and to be the kinds of leaders you need them to be. I'll give you some ways to pray for your elders, pastors at the end, but let's look at the final category. 
A final category in which elders must be blameless as they seek to lead the church in the global mission of Christ. Number three, an elder is blameless because of the virtues he pursues with passion. An elder is blameless because of the virtues he pursues with passion. And there are seven. Seven virtues on the list that Paul did not make up. He did not make this list up. This this was supernaturally handed down to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his list. These are his qualifications. This is what the Lord of the church himself wants his shepherds to be. You can see the virtues in verses 8 and 9. An elder, a pastor, is to be a blameless man. But notice, he must be hospitable, loving what is good, sober-minded, just holy, self-controlled, and holding fast to the faithful word. I mean, you see these virtues, and it's really clear, isn't it? An elder is not so much defined by what he is not, but more profoundly, exactly by what he is. It's weird, isn't it? It seems kind of weird that the first positive qualification, if you will, on the list is that an elder must be hospitable. He must show hospitality. Like for reals? Like, like you can't be an elder if you don't show hospitality. That's right. You are unqualified for ministry if you are inhospitable. That's right. Meaning what? Elders got to wear an apron, bake cookies. Let's be absolutely clear about this. There should always be cookies. That's not the issue that Paul's got in mind. In fact, it's not surprising at all, is it, that that this qualification made the list? It's not surprising at all, because how else are you going to get to know who an elder really is than by spending time in his home and seeing his messy office? Because what is hospitality? What is hospitality but love of strangers? That's what the word literally means. It's the love of strangers. In hospitality, you understand, it's not just a warm meal. It's not just a comfy couch, although it can be those things too. What hospitality is, listen very carefully, it is the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form where we have people into our homes and display the kindness and grace of Jesus Christ himself. That's hospitality. And without it, without it, the Great Commission does not happen. Or it does not happen nearly the way it should. You understand the plan of God unfolding in the world happens through warm meals and cups of coffee and soft couches and having people in our homes and sharing your very lives with them. And what you have to understand is that elders are called to be hospitable, not so that you don't have to be but so that you will know how to be. It seems simplistic. It seems too easy to be true, but but it is true that one of the ways to create a healthy church that changes the world is if we are a hospitable church having people into our homes. We must, we must do this. A second virtue that Paul says an elder must have is that they must love what is good must love what is good, which, to be honest, sounds a little generic. To love what is good, what does that even mean? But it is far from generic. Listen very carefully. 
to love what is good, to be a lover of what is good, goes all the way down into the very core of who a man is and what it is that defines him. You see, to love what is good refers to your internal desires and passions of what you think is supremely valuable. Is even elder or anyone from that matter loves what is good, he loves what God loves, doesn't he? He hates what God hates. The things that matter most to God are the things that matter most to him, and, and to love what is good will inevitably reveal and display itself very practically in a life that is balanced and stable and lived with profound equilibrium that does not get swept away in hobbies and misplaced priorities. So let me ask you this, elders, future elders, and everybody else. Do you love what is good? Do you love what is good? Which means what I'm asking is, do your passions and desires reflect what God himself has said in his word is good? Or has something else in your life taken the upper hand? Third on the list, Paul says that elders absolutely must be sober-minded men. They must be sober-minded, and you can hear it. It is the opposite of drunk-minded. And to be drunk, you know, is to be imbalanced, unstable, erratic, unfocused, impulsive, easily driven to excessive emotional extremes. And to be sober-minded, of course, is to be the opposite of that. To be sober-minded, listen very carefully, to be sober-minded means that that man has a firm grip on reality. That's what it means to be sober-minded, a firm grip on reality. And get this, theology is reality. Theology is reality. You see, what's real and what's true is not necessarily what we think or feel in our emotion, in our circumstances. What's real and what's true is what God has spoken and revealed in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. That is the interpretive lens by which we make sense of the world. So to be a sober-minded man very simply means that you, I, we must interpret all of life through the lens of Romans 11.36, which says, from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. What is the point? What is that? What is that verse saying? That's talking about the supremacy of God, isn't it? That's talking about the sovereignty of God, isn't it? That verse is the absolute undisputed dominion of God over every single moment and event of life. And if that, that is the lens through which we make sense and interpret the world, we will bring great glory to Christ in the midst of a world in chaos and despair. Fourth on the list, an elder must absolutely be a just man. Maybe your version says upright. The word is dikaion. It is upright. In other words, this is a fair man, an impartial man, this man can't be bought. He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't make deals behind the scenes. He is not a power player. He does not give in to power players. 
He's not interested in political maneuvering behind the scenes. He will never be controlled or manipulated by people's wealth or their power or their titles or their degrees or some supposed legacy that they have. Why? Because this man knows, this man knows that one day he will stand naked before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and all of his motives and agendas and desires will be exposed in the sun like cockroaches in the sun. Number five, Paul says that a man who is to be an elder, he must be proven to be holy. Holy, meaning devout, pious. And here the idea is reverent, literally the idea, he is a reverent man. In other words, this is a man who gets the towering majesty of God. This is a man who gets the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. That's a reverent man. I've said this before. This is the kind of man who has a profound God consciousness, who knows that no matter where he is standing, he is standing on holy ground because God is there. And the totality of his being. This is a man for whom God is so real that who God is shapes and governs and determines the secret moments of that man's life when no one can see him except God. That's very practical, you understand. It's very practical to be a reverent man, to be a reverent person, because notice, notice what Paul says virtue number six is. Look at the end of verse seven. This is why Paul puts self-control, you notice, after being reverent, because reverence for the living God is the power we need to be self-controlled. And the thing, the thing about self-control is it is not merely the power of the will. It's not merely grit your teeth determinism. It's not merely learning how to do the things that you hate and, and not doing the things that you would really love to do. It is not mere behavior modification, in other words. Now, you see, self-control happens in our lives. Listen very carefully. Self-control happens in our lives when we become riveted and compelled by a superior mission and pleasure. That's where self-control comes from. When we are riveted, when we are compelled by a superior mission and pleasure, whether it's self-control with food, TV, time, a thought life, spending money or psychotic attachment to a smartphone, when we find the mission and beauty of Christ more compelling than anything else in the world, then and only then will we have mastery over our own private cravings and appetites and desires. One old theologian long dead said this. He said, only the expulsive power of a new affection for the long-term pleasures of the glory of God can destroy the insatiable desire for short-term gratification. Meaning what? Meaning when your heart be taken with God, it will not be taken with that which is not God. 
So current elders, future elders, and everybody else, we must learn the sacred secret of self-control because the life and health of our church depends upon that. Which brings us finally to virtue number seven, and then we're done. Virtue number seven all has to do with what elders are called to do, namely to handle with laser-like precision the very word of the living God. Look at verse nine, elders, pastors, Paul says, he says, must hold fast the faithful word according to the teaching. Why? In order that he would be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And you notice elders, pastors play offense and defense. They exhort in sound doctrine refute those who contradict. And to be totally honest, this really deserves its own sermon here. It really does. And I've got minutes, not hours. And so it's simply enough to say that pastors, elders have as their primary, large and central occupation to feed you and love you and shepherd you and equip you with the very oracles of the living God. The pastors, even on pain of death, are to hold fast the line of sound doctrine with death grip head on the chopping block intensity. And you understand the reason, the reason why the word of God is so central to the mission of the church is because the word proclaimed, the word taught, the word read is how Christ leads his church. This is how Christ speaks to his church. This is how Christ shepherds his church. This is the instrument through which Christ transforms his church. It's how entire churches become embassies of light in a kingdom of darkness. As you can tell that elders love you best and they serve you best, not when they always give you what you want, but when they preach the word feed the flock, shepherd the sheep, and fight the wolves, and lead you behind enemy lines against the powers of darkness, brandishing the sword of the Spirit in their hands. That's the primary calling, calling of an elder, a pastor. By God's grace, for his glory, that is what we will do. And so I'm asking, Tommy, Rich, and I are asking you to pray for us, to pray for your elders, we're daily committed to praying for you, and we need you to daily pray for us. I know that sounds self-serving, but it's not. It is church-serving. Pray for us. Pray a few things. Pray that we would have hearts increasingly infatuated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for that. Pray that we would never wane, but only increase in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pray for us that every single qualification on this list would only increase in our lives with ever-increasing power and measure and joy. Pray for us to have minds anchored to the Word of God. Pray for us for biblical wisdom to shepherd the flock. Pray for God's sovereign hand of protection against wolves, false teaching, division, secret sins beneath the service. And finally, if you pray anything at all, daily 
plead with Christ that he would work in this church in such a way that the only explanation would be a sovereign God doing the supernatural. This is his church. This is his mission. This is his plan. We are his people. We are his slaves. And all of it exists for the glory and fame of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we wouldn't have it any other way. Oh, great shepherd, I confess that it always feels dicey a little bit to preach on being a leader, being a pastor, and yet, Lord, there's no opportunity here to gloat. There's no opportunity here to feel proud. All there is, oh Lord, is this list of qualifications, credentials that are profoundly supernatural and unattainable by mere human power. And Lord, I want, the elders want, we want to increasingly resemble these. And Lord, what I'm asking is that you would make other men want to increasingly resemble these. I pray for more shepherds of the sheep to be cultivated in this church. More elders, shepherds, pastors to rise up from the ranks of this congregation. And Lord, I pray that all men, all men would be elder qualified. Maybe not elders functioning as elders, but that they would be elder qualified. Oh, Lord, here is the standard. Impress upon our souls this standard of who and what a man must be. Lord, may we all, may we all see this list and feel the great challenge and even increasing desire to resemble this, not so that we can gain fame for ourselves, but so that your worth and your power to save and transform people will be put on display. Thank you for your body for your bride, for the church that is the pillar and support of the truth. It is the instrument that you are using to unfold your plan of salvation in the world, and we are so grateful to be a part of it. May you continue to build this church always and only for the glory of your Son, and it's in his name we pray.